it is my pleasure to introduce to you Pastor um, Admin and Teaching Pastor, correct? Uh, Trent Hunter, he is a pastor at Desert Spring Church, and he's with us today with his family as well. We welcome you, and thank you for sharing the word with us. Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 121. Psalm chapter 121. Um, if you open your Bibles, crack it right in half, you'll probably land in the book of Psalms. And then, of course, if you can count, you can get yourself to the 121st Psalm. I do bring you greetings from Desert Springs Church. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, many unfamiliar faces I haven't met, uh, but a few of you before, but not an unfamiliar work or church to me. Uh, I met Adam before the church launched, oh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, a little, little longer than that, and uh, part of a little network of pastors in town that meets, so I, I visit with Adam oh, half a dozen times a year for prayer and, and talking about uh, church life, and so we've been praying for you and are grateful for God's good work of ministry that's happening here. At Desert Springs Church, we have members who remember the days of the, you know, the truck and the trailer and setting up, and those are good stories. And it's a good work you all are doing. We're, we're blessed that you are in the city and to call you partners. Well, today we'll be in Psalm 121. Let's start by reading it together. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this short vivid, beautiful psalm where you promise to keep us, to protect us, to save us for yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the psalms are a book of poems for prayer to God. And as poems, the psalms are sort of like a photo album if you knew to look for them. Uh, you didn't have to look hard to find a variety of images, almost like a, a photo album of pictures that you're looking through that communicate to us something of what God has in mind for us today. It's filled with pictures. It was written for plug-and-play use, so this was a psalm used by and written by a particular follower of God in Israel many, many, many hundreds, even thousands of years ago. And yet it was written down, not merely in his journal for his own use, but inspired by the Spirit for ours. A little background on how this psalm would have been used. Jewish pilgrims, uh, along with several other psalms, would have used this psalm. Whoa. Whoa. Excuse me. Um, I may, if, if it happens a few more times, I may pull the plug and just project, which I can do. Jewish pilgrims would have used this on their way to Jerusalem as part of an annual tradition to the feasts. And they would have used this psalm as they looked toward Jerusalem as a, as a prayer. 
Uh, uh, the Jews would have also used this psalm returning from exile. From, you're familiar with the Bible story. The Jewish people were exiled from their land, but then they returned. And they would have used this psalm as they returned to Jerusalem, an 800-mile journey home, the pilgrim psalm. And even Jesus would have used this psalm. And it's here for us today. I don't usually like the word journey to describe the Christian life only because it's sort of overused, but it's a good word. And it's actually what this psalm is for. It's for the journey of the Christian life. So let's look together at the poem. It's a picture from one man's long and treacherous journey home to the presence of God. And it's for our long and often treacherous journey home to the presence of God. The psalm begins, you'll see, with a question from the trail. A question from the trail. On this journey, the man looks at the daunting hills before him and he asks, from where does my help come? He's looking up. And he asks, from where does my help come? A typical question you might ask on a long foot journey. If you're on an afternoon hike, you might ask yourself, where did I put my sandwich? And then if you're on a a half day or a day hike, you might ask, I wonder if my traveling companion has an extra sandwich for me to eat. But if you're on a multi-day walking journey in the arid climate of the ancient Near East, this is your question. From where does my help come? It's the question from one who is exhausted. In the mid-90s, I lived in the Bay Area and joined some friends at a church youth group for a weekend trip to Yosemite. Who's been to Yosemite? Okay, has anyone here hiked Half Dome? Ah, cool. (laughs) Done it three times. No, two times. I almost got to the top the third time. But uh, Christy got dizzy, so we had to go back. In any case, uh, this is one of my favorite spots on the planet. I was not a believer uh, when I was invited to go on this trip with some Christian friends, with their church youth group. We began at the crack of dawn in Yosemite Valley and ended on the top of what is truly a giant dome, carved, uh, it's, it's cut in half, half dome, it's cut, the, the valley was cut out by, by glaciers. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous spot and quite a hike. And quite a hike for me, I was skinnier then than I am now and weaker then than I am now. I don't know how I did it. Besides here and home, uh, with my family, this is one of my favorite places on earth, and I'll tell you why. It was one of the first encounters that I recall with the world that God made where I gave him credit for what he made. I'll tell you that for every measure of difficulty on that hike came 10 measures of spiritual reflection. And it was in the experience of that day-long hike that my thoughts weren't crucially or mainly about my legs and my physical body, but about my life and my frailty. My thoughts were bouncing off the dome of the hill we were approaching to heaven and about heaven. I wasn't thinking about my legs in the main, but about my life. And it's at the top of that dome that I have my first memory of praising God for his creation. I remember thinking, oh my goodness, God made this and I have denied him his glory my whole life. Well, the the writer of Psalm 121 is not asking about help for his hike in the same way that I wasn't mainly concerned with my body that day. He was asking about help for his life. And isn't it true that the deeper we get into the experience of our humanity, the more your body is pressed to the wall and you know your frailty firsthand and how dangerous the world is. 
the deeper go our thoughts about eternal things. And this, this hiker is on a long hike, and his thoughts are on the Lord. And so this is the question from the trail. And it comes with an answer for all of life. Look at verse 2. He answers his own question. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that's the best answer we could imagine to the best question that any of us could ever ask. And if you can imagine a better source of help in life, and indeed in death, than the Lord who made heaven and earth, then you are imagining things. So how do you answer this question? From where does your help come? And I hope you're asking that question this morning. It is why we gather on Sundays as Christians, as the church, to remind ourselves of what we are so easily forgetful of. And that is that we need help and that our help comes from the Lord. We're here to remember our helplessness. And even if we don't feel it, to be told ourselves it, that the Spirit might work to convince us of our need for God. Notice the writer speaks first to himself, my help, but then he addresses his traveling friends, or better to say, each friend. Today, you in the Bible, when you read it, means you in your seat. This is a psalm for you. And through this poem, God has given us more than a Q&A. The psalmist asks a question and he answers it. But he doesn't stop there, and the Spirit hasn't stopped there. For it's not enough for us merely to know the answer to the question. We have to feel the answer to the question, and that's why we have poetry. Poetry is meant to make us to feel the truth of God. And so we have a poem to unpack what's said. What kind of help are we talking about here? Well, if you look at the repetition of a particular word, you'll get your answer. Look at the word keep and the word kept. Sometimes it takes a few times reading through a psalm to see the center of it, the, the thrust of it. Our minds sort of run after one verse we like or one idea we like, but then we notice this repetition of keep and kept. And this tells us that this kind of help that we're talking about here is not help for an exam, it's help for God to protect us, to guard us, to watch over us, and to preserve our souls. It's help for our soul. God, the Lord, is our keeper and our guardian. That's the central message of the psalm. We have four stanzas in this psalm. If you look at poetry, you often have breaks. And there are four breaks in this psalm. Four stanzas, so we'll have four comforts. The first comfort. The Lord is your keeper from trouble up ahead. He's your keeper from trouble up ahead. Verses 1 and 2. When the psalmist said, I lift my eyes up to the hills, he wasn't pondering their beauty. And if that's what you originally thought, sort of like me, it's because usually when you see hills, you're in a car when you're looking at them or driving right over them. When I lift my eyes up to the hills, I usually do so with a snack, with the AC, with some music, with my family, and I don't care about the hills. I take my foot and I press it a little harder on the gas. The hills present me with no trouble whatsoever. But this traveler is on his feet, and when you're on your feet, the hills in front of you you don't ponder their beauty necessarily, or you might, but then you're quickly onto the trouble that they present. You ponder what it's going to take to get over or through them, and whether you have what it takes to get over and through the hill that's in front of you. And facing the hills, we're actually facing our future. That's what he's doing. He's looking at his future. And it's a parable of the future of every person. Of course, there's nothing like feeling the burn when you make it to the top of one hill to discover that you are 
at the bottom of another hill. And life is often like that. It's either one hill after another, or it's just one long, incredible, daunting hill. But these hills weren't only steep, and they were steep. They were also dangerous. Home to robbers and thugs. Home to those waiting in the shadows to entrap you. That's what the hills represented. The hills were dangerous. These were the alleyways, the dark corners of the earth and the passage. They could entrap you to take your possessions, your clothes, your food, perhaps your life. The hills were not safe. And that's not what comes to mind when I see hills, but that's what would have come to mind for the traveler on a long journey who wrote this psalm. And as the writer looked at the hills ahead, we look ahead to our futures and wonder if we have what it takes to get through those hills. We wonder what lies ahead and what dangers are before us. That's why some of you haven't been asking from where does my help come. Maybe you haven't thought there's help. You've been asking if there's a God or does he care or why should I even go on living? It is. These are the questions that are raised. Why should I go on living when the hill before us seems impossible? And giving up seems best. The hills have this effect that they can crush our souls. And as we'll see, they leave us with only one helpful question that we can ask and only one helpful option. And so I hope that you are here this morning asking that question, from where does my help come? Because if you can ask that question, if you can ask for help, then there is an answer and there is a helper. And if the Lord is your keeper, then you are kept by the one who has more than what it takes. Here the psalmist, he looks to the hills and considers the one who made them. He considers the one who is higher than the hills that he is looking at and who is stronger and smarter than anything that might lurk in those hills. So the Lord who made heaven and earth is your keeper from what's ahead, from trouble up ahead. And second, look at verses three and four. The Lord is your keeper from trouble underfoot. So poetry does this. There's, in this case, you stare at it long enough, you see there's directions. There's uh, hills up ahead, and now he's speaking of his feet, so we look down. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. The riders look to the hills ahead, and now he looks down at his feet. When you're outside on the ground, even well-worn trails can present you with trouble under your feet. I moved here in 2010, and I like to bike I'm not a big mountain biker. I don't like to do dangerous things, but I do like to, to bike. And I was excited about uh, living somewhere where there were nice trails right around the corner. So you've got trails up in the foothills. And uh, that was in August when I was excited about getting in the trails. And in September, when I finally got in the trails, I realized there were cacti all along the side of the trails. And as I was riding with my friend, it occurred to me, I think if you fall, you could land in a cactus. And be stabbed a thousand times at once. It sounds horrifying. And so I asked about this and if it happens. And sure enough, uh, the guy that had my job before me, I was biking with a buddy who fell right on a cactus and they spent hours pulling these things out of him. It's terrifying. So what's under us matters. That's just on a bike. But on a foot, just the same. Holes, crags, cracks in the ground. If you're a hiker, you know what this is all about. He's thinking about his feet. But there's more than trouble underfoot. There's trouble with his own foot. Your own foot can give you trouble. You can lose your balance. You're not always so steady. And you can't look at two places at one time. So you're looking up. You're looking 
more closely ahead, and you can't always look at exactly where your feet are going. You're taking inventory as you walk as to where your foot will go, and you're sort of trusting that nothing's appeared or you haven't missed anything. And you can get tired, and that's when you're most vulnerable to a slip, when the energy you gathered from rest is used up. And so what's under your foot isn't as dangerous as even what your foot is capable of doing to you. For if you go down, your, whole, your foot slips, your whole body goes down. So challenges in life aren't just on the road, are they? Just the circumstances that come to us. Our challenge, biggest challenge in life is our soul itself. Our biggest challenge in life is ourselves. So thank God if you're his, verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. And how we, can we be so sure? We'll explain exactly what this means later, by the way. But how can we be so sure? Well, he's not like you in any way. Look, verse 3. He, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He doesn't go to sleep at night. The Lord does not take naps. He doesn't run out of energy, for he's the one who is the source of all energy. And so the first thing the psalmist feels like he needs to say to communicate the ground for saying that God keeps his people is that God doesn't sleep. In a really important way, he isn't like us. He doesn't run out of energy or attention. We sleep, he doesn't. Which means that when God watches over you, he watches over you and he focuses on you with perfect, profound, beautiful attention. He does not blink. In high school, if I arranged to come home late, I almost certainly found my mom sleeping on the family room chair. She, that's the best a parent can do to watch over their kid. Now, she might have followed me everywhere I went, and that wouldn't have gone so well. And that's not really how parenting works anyways with teenagers. But So she, she watched over me by sleeping in the chair. Well, the Lord is with you, and he isn't sleeping. Even she slumbered. You have to get God right. In other words, he's of no help if he's too much like us. About a year ago, I was meditating on this text and decided to teach it to my daughter, Madeline. And she learned the words. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's not too hard to remember. It's something to recite before bed. She's probably forgotten it by now. That was 8 in the morning when I taught it to her. At 8 in the evening, we were outside in the driveway for ice cream and stars, a really cheap date that I thought of and need to do more with my kids. Sit on the driveway and look at the sky. And uh, I told her she could ask me two questions, one about God, one about life. And her question about life was, what was my favorite color? And her question about God, does God sleep? Now, mind you, I hadn't read the rest of the psalm. We'd only learned the first words. From where does my help come? I look to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Twelve hours later, the question is raised, does he sleep? Now, I don't know if that question was raised because of the psalm or some kind of deep theological reflex she had where the question was raised, well, how can he watch over me? How can he be my help? If he sleeps, does he sleep? He doesn't sleep. So we talked about this and we opened up to the next verse and we read Psalm 121. She raised the right question for whatever reason she raised it. Well, we need to know that God is able to watch over us and surely he is able. 
We also need to know if he's willing to watch over us. And he is willing. Why would he do this? He's the maker of heaven and earth. Surely there are other things that he can give his attention to at a given moment. There are other more entertaining things. There are other, frankly, from our position, more important things we might imagine for God to give his attention to. Maybe you imagine that God can watch over you, but surely he doesn't because there's no interest you'd imagine for him to do so. But the imagery on repeat here will help us. Remember, the Lord is our keeper. He keeps us. And what kind of things do you keep? What kind of things do you protect? Treasures. Things you want to keep. Things that are important to you, though they may not be important to someone else. And so the Lord, for us, he keeps us as his treasures. He doesn't slumber and sleep. He's more concerned and more attentive than any most watchful parent And he promises to keep us because he wants to keep us. You might think that he keeps you or watches over you because he's committed to keeping his word. But remember, he doesn't say things begrudgingly or because he's made to or forced to, but he says what he says and he promises what he promises because it comes from his his heart. Remember the personal pronouns, you, your. So you are his treasure if you're his and he is your personal keeper. In fact, If you remember the early chapters of the Bible, the maker of heaven and earth made heaven and earth for you. He made humans last, and he made the world as a place for us to enjoy him. So don't let this elevate your sense of self-importance too high in the wrong way, but do let it elevate your sense of God's tender care and his benevolence. The maker of heaven and earth can keep track of your foot, for he never sleeps. So God keeps us from trouble up ahead. He keeps us from trouble underfoot. And now we look up. He keeps us from trouble overhead. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And for the traveler, the sun and the moon, the day and the night, will present a variety of difficulties. The sun is a source of our life, but surely... It can also, I mean, none of us can testify this firsthand, we're all here, but it can also be the source of our death. The fireball at about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, blazing right at you and in your face, and it lights up the earth with life, but it can also suck the life right out of you. It can burn your skin. I had a friend in high school who made a Batman stencil, and another friend who made a Superman stencil. They put it on their chests. And they put sunscreen everywhere else. And then they laid out. This is the California sun. And the one guy, you know, stayed awake or woke up and decided to go inside. And his buddy's still outside sleeping. And he wakes up with some serious burns. And by the time he did the reveal for me and showed me the Batman stencil, it had been a year and you could see it right on his chest. That's the sun for you if you're out under it too long can strike you. Strike you. The sun can literally strike a person to the ground so that they can't get up. That's the sun. Now, you might not think of the moon as a pain. You might say, I can get that with the sun, but the moon, eh. And if the moon doesn't present you with difficulties, well, that's because you live in a house. You live indoors, and you're mostly inside at night. The moon, too, can strike you. It represents everything that comes with the dark. 
can strike you with cold. It can strike you with uncertainty. It can strike you with great danger. It can strike you with great wind in the night. Not too long ago, there was some windstorm in the night and Facebook in the morning. There were trampolines turned upside down in people's backyards. Stuff shredded in their backyards. My goodness, the wind at night. Miseries that leave the heart and life like a yard turned upside down come to us at the night. And some of you, better than others, may know the danger and the trouble and the misery that the night or the moon can bring. The pairing of the sun and the moon is but a parable for the diverse miseries of human life that come to us at any time of day or night. Some are blinding and hot, and some are shadowy and cold, but all of them happen to us under one celestial sphere or another. It doesn't matter if you're in the sunniest part of your life financially, at the end of a degree you've worked hard for, your business that you spent a lifetime to build, or the son of a marriage, or the son of parenting, things may be going well. Men and women despair of life in all of life's circumstances. And even the very circumstances that bring us good, like the sun, can be turned to harm us because of sin. And those in the dark, experiencing difficulty, may wonder if those in the heat understand or can relate at all to their misery. And they may not. But neither do you understand their misery. Misery is common to all of us. Physical, emotional, psychological. Looks different. And hear this. The Lord who is the maker of heaven and earth made the sun and the moon and keeps you in the midst of whatever you're going through if you're his. If you're his, your soul will not be struck down. If you're his, you're his he is the shade for your soul. The Lord is your keeper from trouble up ahead, underfoot, and overhead. And as if the psalmist had not yet conveyed the comprehensive nature of God's keeping care, look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So I don't know how else to put this point except to say forth, The Lord is your keeper from trouble of all kinds at all times. His protection is total. And there is no circumstance in life or moment in life or place in space where God is not taking care of and keeping his people. When you go out and when you come in, he says, he keeps you. When you go out for your first day of school and you come home from your last day of college. When you go out on your wedding day and you come home from a difficult counseling session, when you're at the hospital to have a baby, and when you come home after a major surgery, when you go out for your first job interview, and when you come home when the job has ended, however it ended, be it fired or laid off, or a transition of some kind, or retirement, the Lord is your keeper. When you go out for your anniversary, and when you come home from your spouse's funeral, the Lord is your keeper. And the beautiful and the hard. And let's not forget the mundane. Because that's most of life. You're going out for groceries and you're coming home for dinner. Going out for diapers and you're coming home to change them. And you're going out to work and you're going out to play. 
and in your coming home to rest, and all of that, and all of that too, and all the going out, and all the coming in, the Lord is your keeper, constantly watching. And he is able to keep you from this time forth forevermore, precisely because he's the maker of heaven and earth. Now, it's a beautiful poem, and you might have recognized it when you came in this morning and when I first read it. It's a beautiful poem, but you have to wonder if it's true. I mean, when it comes to real life, are these just nice words? In believing them, are we believing something kind of obviously untrue? Something a bit over the top. Is God really keeping Christians that are picked out by a gunman in a classroom shooting? Is he really keeping Christians who lose their heads? Is he really keeping Christian women who are ravaged by ISIS leaders over and over again and then killed? And that's a fair question. Can Christians in those circumstances read this psalm and say, Amen? Well, here's one that's over the top. A promise. Matthew 5.10 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's over the top, my friends. That ought to be harder to believe. And yet, if that's true, well, then our psalm can be true. And this is even the way that Jesus went, is it not? It was the middle of the day when he was struck and taken up a hill where his clothes were taken from him and sold and where he was actually killed. And it was there that while the sun was up, the sun went, sky went dark and his spirit was struck. And that hill that was before Jesus of Calvary, Jesus took for us. And the fall. He is to use this imagery, our shade because he takes the heat for us. This is how he can keep us. Loud cries and tears. Scripture tells us Jesus wailed the night before. And do you know that Scripture describes the Christian life as a following Jesus in this same suffering to glory? Jesus is the pattern for his followers in discipleship. His life of suffering and glory to follow is the pattern for those that come after him. And there is glory to follow. Today, like the exiles on their way home to Palestine from Babylon, looking forward to their city, Jerusalem, we are pilgrims in a land on our way to a better and more lasting home in a heavenly city. And that's our destination, and we get there regardless of what comes to us between here and then. In fact, that's exactly how Peter addressed first century Christians who also had Psalm 1 and 21 and yet suffered. They were strangers and, strangers and exiles, he wrote. Listen to the words that Peter gives to us in 1 Peter, writing to strangers and exiles in this world. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Listen for the word. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded, guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. How good is that? And would you know that he's even writing this to those who are suffering? Listen to the next words. 
In this you rejoice, this hope, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, perhaps because of many hills, you love him. So Psalm 121 doesn't tell us everything we might need to know about suffering in this life and, and home with the Lord. But it is a poem for pilgrims on a journey who know where they're going. And it is over the top. And it's true because God is over the top. And so the hills in front of you and the craggy ground beneath and the sun above are there for you. Remember that the, the various trials test the genuineness of our faith. You may indeed fall into a hole. But don't forget that as you fall into a hole in this life, that God is actually keeping your soul, you have not ultimately with your foot slipped. And through your cancer and your heartache and loneliness, God is working over the material of your soul to fashion something so beautiful that human eyes could not behold it and go on seeing. Here's how one saint and a friend of mine put it. The more we learn of God's powerful sovereignty over this life, even and especially over the parts that seem most severe, our knowledge of his mercy does not diminish, but it rather it grows. And those are the words of a pilgrim. Romans 8.39, neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come. We should add nor hill or crag or sun or moon or cold nor anything you experience in your going out or your coming in will be able to separate you from the love of Christ. In fact, these things are even working together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So my friends, God is more than sovereign in your life. You may believe that, that he is sovereign in your trials. Can you also believe that he is also sweet in your trials? That through your trial, he is performing a work he is fashioning your soul. He's working over the material of your soul. He's preparing you for heaven through your trial. He's more than sovereign in it. He is sweet in it. So back to the question we began with. From where does my help come? And I said that was the best question anyone could ever ask. And it's the best question because it's the most basic question. It's the question whose answer decides everything else in life. And without it, I don't know how you can bear what's underfoot and what's overhead. I just don't. The question of why those hills are still there. Hills are there for a reason. They're supposed to look impossible. In fact, there's one hill called death. There's a tombstone on the top of it. And that one's especially impossible. And if you're not paying attention to the hills, at some point you're going to stare that one down. And there is one who took it for you. I pray you're trusting in him. So ask and answer this question before any other. From where does my help come? If you don't like asking for help, realize that being a Christian is asking for help. Being a Christian is admitting our need for help. Help is the first thing children ask for when they can speak, and it's the first thing they will refuse as soon as they think they can. And know that in asking and answering the question, you're hardly the first. There was the psalmist, but there's also the ancient catechism. It rephrases the question, just not poetically. 
What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? Well, here's the same answer, but in light of Christ. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready now and from now on to follow and live for him. So if the hills in front of you make you believe that more, then I say, let them grow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the Bible tells us truth. We also thank you for poetry, where by your spirit you have painted truth for us. Where you lead us not merely to acknowledge truth, but to feel it. And Father, I pray for this sweet church and your work here, and that this psalm, Psalm 121, would be true of these dear saints, that they would look to you for their help, and they would know you as their keeper. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.